Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Kingway, Fox, Beard, Lock is acting very weird. Captain Pike, Cisco's wife, Klingons, and the afterlife. Boimler, Tendi's dog, Ransom is very hot. Four drive, Black Alert, Giorgio has gone berserk. Teacher, Batless, Edward is an idiot. Fox is dead, Wolf is wed, Chekhov's wearing red. Cedar's cat, Kempak's cat, Q is sad enough of that. Beam me up, make it so, everybody, let's go. We are Well, good evening, Trekkies and Trekkers around the globe, but that incredibly awesome song, which I happen to love, maybe I'm impartial to it because I kind of wrote the lyrics and kind of, you know, Eric kind of sang it, but I just love it. I think it's catchy. And it puts me in the mood to Trek Talk, and that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to Trek Talk. We're going to be talking about Star Trek Discovery. we got a lot of great stuff, so you don't want to go anywhere. But before we get too far into it, I want to introduce my Trek experts. We'll start off, first of all, with Eric. Eric is out in Portland. How are you doing tonight, Eric? I am doing really good. Kind of a typical fall day here in Portland. And uh, this episode we're going to talk about tonight, I thought was really interesting. I'm super excited to talk about it. So, uh Happy Thursday. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fun. I'll tell you that much. We got a lot to cover and we squeezed it all in last week and we'll squeeze it all in this week. So don't you guys worry. And we also have with us Charles. Charles is out in Vegas. How you doing tonight, Charles? I'm doing good. Feels like a combination of uh Portland weather and Vermont weather. We stayed in the oh, it's all day. All day long, it has been cloudy all day long. I'm not sure we've seen the sun, and we've had threats of rain all day and wind. It's been feeling well, like winter out there today. It is currently snowing here in Vermont at what else is new. And But, but Saturday, it's going to be 55 and raining. So I don't know. Mother Nature's kind of whacked out here. I don't, I don't know. But wait, guys. We have more. We also have live from Vegas. We have Nate. How you doing, Nate? I'm doing all right. Uh, yes, uh, Charles speaks the truth. It's been uh, it's been a, a gloomy day outside. Uh, it's currently 57, and uh, I show uh, that my computer shows that rain showers are due. Uh, and our Saturday, in comparison to your Saturday, is supposed to be 54 degree high. And mostly sunny. So there you go. And dropping into the uh, high 30s and lows for a couple of days. Well, I got to tell you guys, last weekend we we went out and cut down our Christmas tree up here to a local Christmas tree farm. It was really nice. It was a nice sunny day. And we went, we went and cut our tree down and got that all set. So that was pretty cool. I got all my Star Trek ornaments up on the tree. So uh, we're we're ready for old St. Nick to stop in and visit, see what he's going to bring. Maybe a Gorn action figure? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But um, anyways, 
We have a great show planned for you guys. We're going to talk about Choose to Live, which is last week's Star Trek Discovery episode. And we've got a lot of paths to cover, uh, pun intended, um, it, with this episode. So you don't want to go away. We also have, as usual, we have our Star Trek birthdays, and we got some really good ones tonight. We have our convention calendar go over and we have our fan shout out so there's a lot going on our phone number here is 646-668-2433 it's thursday night at 7 30 p.m eastern standard time and we are live that means you can call and join the conversation and it looks like we have a caller that was quick let's see hey good evening thank you for calling trek talk and what's your name and where are you calling us from tonight Hey, my name is David. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. You know, oh, you know, David, one of these days, your phone number is going to sink into my old senile mind, and I will just know that it's you. But um, you would think after all these years, <laughs> I would know that, but I just never do. I'm sorry. But uh, well, welcome okay. to the show, David. I could always call in as somebody else. <laughs> yeah, there cool. you go. And you know what? I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> So, guys, uh, Trek Talking is doing wonderful. We have 60,179 downloads as of tonight, and that's, that's really awesome. And uh, you can go over to our Facebook page at Talking and Beyond. You have to spell that all out to find us. And uh, join us over there. We have 76,693 followers on our Facebook page, and we'd love to add you to our ever-growing Star Trek family. When you do go to our Facebook page... At the top, you'll see the Live Long and Prosper um, logo. And uh, just tell us where you're listening from. And every week, I pick 15 lucky listeners. If you see a heart next to your name from Truck Talking, that means yours truly, Uncle Jim, has picked your name, and you want to tune in to the next show and hear your name on the radio. Well, on Blog Talk Radio, which is what we are. So without any further ado, Eric. Who do we have to send fan shout-outs with on your list tonight? Well, our number one fan shout-out goes to somebody all the way out in Thailand, Tanakit Singring from Uban Ratchathathani. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Ratchathathani. I practiced it. And I still messed it up. And thank you so much for listening to us, Thundercat. Uh, we really appreciate it. All the way from Thailand, you give us a little Thai flag and a little live long and prosper symbol. So thank you very much. We're also giving a big shout out to Dan Gray, hanging out here uh, closer to me, not quite close, but uh, in Carlton, Oregon. So Dan, thanks for listening to us from Carlton, Oregon. We've got Angel Sivinantos Chanes from Zaragoza, Spain. Ooh, another Spanish listener. And another angel. We've had a few angels. Or is it Angel? I'm not sure. Thank you so much for listening to us from Zaragoza, Spain. Another one. Here we go. Top fan, Angel Ramirez Chacon from Barcelona. I have been to Barcelona, and I absolutely love your city. It is so cool. And my favorite building in the whole world is actually there, La Grada Familia. So thank you for listening to us, Angel Ramirez Chacon. And my final fan shout-out goes out to Diane Webster-Giesen. From Seattle, Seattle way, up here in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you, Diane, for listening to us. Charles, who's on your list this week? I've got top fan Gail Smith from Maryland. Top fan Brett 
to steal from Las Vegas. I'm not familiar with Brent. Maybe he's out there. You should look us up. Wendy Lancaster from Australia. Robert Castaneto Sr. from Grand Canyon, Arizona. Not that far away. And Barbara Montgomery McNeil. Heel from Tennessee, USA. Jim, who's on your list? Any New Yorkers? I, I, I do have a couple, actually. I'd like to say thank you to Darren Nash for listening in upstate New York, um, which is probably around where I used to live, actually, Albany. Albany, New York is considered upstate New York. When people say New York, they think New York City, but there's a whole area between New York City and Buffalo, and that's referred to as upstate New York. So thanks for listening, Darren Nash in upstate New York. We'd also like to say Hank, we'd also like to say thank you to Brett Swan, originally from Vermont, but currently in Iowa. Thank you for listening, Brett. We really appreciate it. And we'd like to say thank you to top fan Tom Sangorio from New York City, Queens. Represent. That's where, uh, where my New York Mets are. So let's hope they do a little bit better this year than they did last year. Let's go Mets, Tom. Thanks for listening. And we'd also like to say thank you to Mike Smith from Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, Canada, about 20 minutes from the famous Niagara Falls. I've, I've been there. You guys been to Niagara Falls? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nope. Been there. Yeah. The uh, Canadian side is way better. Definitely go there yeah. in the wintertime if you can. The most amazing thing happens. All of the mist from the falls freezes on the railings on the Canadian side there, and you get these gigantic ice formations that are like six feet high and two feet thick just built from mist over time. It's amazing. Yeah. The, 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 we went up there, and the American side is just a giant park. The Canadian yeah. side, everything's happening in Canada, so that's pretty cool. And last but not least, we'd like to say thank you to Christopher Pierce, who's listening to us in the Bristol, UK. So thank you. Thank you very much to everybody. Now, this week, guys, we don't have as many birthdays as we did last week. So, um, you know, which was a two-week birthday. So it's going to go relatively quick. But before we do our birthdays, we always like to do our remembrances and remember those members of our Star Trek family who are no longer with us. And uh, for that, we turn to That was not a Klingon song. All right, Eric, uh, take Worf. it away. Poor Worf's therapy every week about that. Uh, well, every week. He is not. He'll get over it. Well, we have four members of our Star Trek community who we are remembering this week who would have had birthdays. Uh, our first remembrance goes out to Ned Romero, actor Ned Romero. He was fortunate enough to play three different roles uh, in different eras of Star Trek, actually. He played, uh, of course, the Klingon Krell in TOS's Private Little War. He also then moved into TNG, and he played uh, Anthwara, who was one of those uh, – he was a Native American person in that uh, uh, episode called Journey's End from TNG. And then he also played Chakotay's grandfather in the Voyager episode, The Fight. So very famous actor. You should look him up if you don't know who he is. 
uh, did a great job in all those roles, and I love that he got to return twice after that TOS appearance. So happy birthday, Ned Romero. We're also saying happy birthday to actress Karen Landry. Uh, she played a pretty interesting character. She played uh, a, a strange alien called a Vorgan, uh, the Vorgan Azure, uh, in the TNG episode Captain's Holiday. That, that's the one where they... Uh, there are these weird aliens with these pink heads and there's some time travel involved where they sort of hide something in the past for uh, Picard to find later in the future. Um, so that character was portrayed by uh, Karen Landry, the female of uh, Morgan. Happy birthday to Karen. We're also saying happy birthday to actor Ted Knight, who played, uh, or I should say voiced, I guess, the character Carter Winston in TS- TAS's episode, The Survivor. He actually wasn't given screen credit uh, at the time, uh, and it came out later that he voiced that character. So uh, glad that he finally got his his uh, props for that. Uh, who? But he is like way better well known for a couple of different things, and one in particular is definitely, I believe, if I remember correctly, one of Jim's absolute favorite movies of all time. Is that not true? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and by the way, we're waiting for you to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> he plays Judge Smalls in Caddyshack. Woohoo! That's that's right. Yep. <laughs> what a great role! Uh, so happy birthday, Ted Knight. Uh, you are missed a couple of great roles there. One of them Star Trek related uh, in TAS, nonetheless, which is pretty cool. And our final remembrance this week will go out to Gail Bonnie. Uh, the third of our three witches, actually she plays technically the second witch, in TOS's episode, Cat's Paw. Uh, I believe that we have had one witch birthday each of the last three months, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so happy birthday to Gail Bonnie, And that's it for our remembrances. Charles, how about the birthdays of those who are still with us? All right. Let's do Valora Norlin. Played Doris in TNG's Pattern of Force. Terry Hatcher played Lieutenant D.G. Robin, Robinson in TNG's The Outrageous Okana. That one sure comes up a lot. It does, doesn't it? A lot of birthdays from the Okana. From the Okana. Outrageous. It is outrageous. <laughs> it is outrageous. Leon Russom played CNC in Star Trek VI. And Admiral Todman in DS9's The Die is Cast. And Kimberly Ireland played Madeline in Star Trek Into Darkness. And that actually finishes my birthday. So Jim gets to round us off. Yeah, and you know what's funny? I always do the Klingons, and I got a bunch of Klingons. But I do have one non-Klingon, though, who could kind of be a Klingon because she kicked so much butt <laughs> on the show. <laughs> I could see her being into um, Klingon stuff. I, I think she could, too. So we want to say happy, <laughs> yeah. happy birthday to Rachel Antrell, who played Commander Nan on Discovery. And um, I'm trying to get her on the podcast, guys. So maybe she'll be joining us, let's hope, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we'd also like to say happy birthday and kabla. To Brian Bonsell, who played Alexander, young Alexander, on TNG. And uh, the next two are actually brothers, and I've met them both. The first one, we'd like to say happy birthday to Tony Todd, 
who played Kern on TNG and DS9. And he also played the grown-up Jake Sisko in DS9's episode, The Visitor. And for those of you out there who are horror fans, I think he's better known for his uh, role as the Candyman, actually. So uh, happy birthday to Tony Todd, Worf's younger brother. And speaking of Worf... um, I protest. I am not a merry man. No, he's not a merry man at all. And I don't know why he wouldn't be a merry man, because it's his birthday. So we want to say happy birthday and kapla to Michael Dorn, the man, the myth, the legend, who played Worf in TNG, DS9, his grandfather, Star Trek, Generations, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis. Man, does he get around. And uh after yep. video games, yes. And Worf is uh, Worf is the whole reason why I'm here doing this podcast right now. When TNG first came on, and I was sitting there with my wife, well, my girlfriend in high school at the time, now she's my wife, and uh, a bunch of friends, and we had a pizza, and we're watching Star Trek for the first time, and Worf comes on the bridge, and I was like, oh, my God, there's a Klingon on the bridge of the Enterprise. This is the coolest thing ever. Ever, and I was sucked in right off the bat. Um, the fact that the mortal enemies of the Federation were now on the bridge, I just and I just fell in love with the character. Worf met Michael Dorn several times at conventions. In fact, had him as a guest star at one of my conventions, and uh, I just love Michael Dorn. He's a class act all the way around. So happy birthday to Michael Dorn! And without any further ado, guys. You know what time it is now? It's time for convention, convention, convention. Calendar, 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 calendar. All right, guys, convention calendar. If you'd like any information on any of the conventions we're about to mention, I recommend getting in touch with the hotel or the location where the event is being held, and they can probably point you in the right direction. Or maybe you could do a Google search and find a Facebook page or a website, okay? The first convention we want to mention is Comic-Con Revolution in Ontario, December 18th and 19th, Ontario Convention Center in Ontario, Canada. We also have Fan Expo New Orleans 2022, January 7th, 8th, and 9th at the New Orleans Ernest North Morial Center in New Orleans, L.A. We'd also like to mention Albuquerque Comic-Con 2022, January 14th, 15th, and 16th at the Albuquerque Convention Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And last on my list is Puerto Rico Comic-Con. 2022, January 14th, 15th, and 16th in the Puerto Rico Convention Center in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And Eric, what conventions do you have on your list for us? Oh, I got some good ones, but can I just say, am I the only one who hears Albuquerque and every single time in my head goes, I should have taken a left at Albuquerque? I don't know. I can't even help it. (laughs) Good old Bugs Bunny. (laughs) All right, we're tracking a convention at the Middle Georgia Comic-Con uh, convention, January 15th, just upcoming next month, 
at the Holiday Inn, Macomb North in Macomb, Georgia. We're also watching Central Florida Comic-Con 2022, January 15th to the 16th at the RP Funding Center in Lakeland, Florida. We've got WinterCon 2022, January 15th through the 16th at the Hyatt Regency JFK Airport at Resorts World New York in Jamaica, New York. And finally on my list, the Fan Expo Portland 2022, 2022, January 21st through 23rd, Oregon Convention Center right here in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. Will I be going? Maybe. I've been before. It's a blast. Charles, what do you got on your list? Well, we got the QuadCon Cedar Rapids, January 30th. Double Tree by Hilton Cedar Rapids Convention Complex, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Capital Trade Show, February 6th, 2022. Jim Durrell Recreation Center, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Semi Valley Toy and Comics Fest, February 6th, Grand Vista Hotel, Semi Valley, California. And Long Beach Comic Expo, February 12th and 13th, Long Beach Convention Center, Long Beach, California. And if you're listening to the show and you are aware of an event or you're hosting an event and you want to have it listed on this show, just go to our Facebook page, Trek Talk and Beyond, and send us the information and we'll get it on our convention, 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 calendar, calendar, calendar as soon as possible. We'd love to hear from you guys. All right, that Jim, wraps up. Can, the, Jim, can I add one, one little uh, news event uh, related to uh, cons that I just found out about yesterday? Absolutely. Uh, for those that uh, are interested in San Diego Comic-Con uh, events, San Diego Comic-Con has now opened up a museum in Balboa Park in San Diego, California. So I just wanted to uh, let people know that that uh, opened uh, on November 26th. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's something that uh, you can go visit. Uh, I, I saw a video that uh, they have a Star Trek display, an Adams Family display, uh, of the art of Adam's family. Um, they have uh, some, of, of course, costumes on display. So I just wanted to, I just found out about that yesterday and wanted to add that in uh, to your convention lineup. Uh, so there you go. Now, is that is that in conjunction with the convention or is that all the time? No. It is it is a separate thing located uh, in Balboa Park. Uh, not related. It's related to the convention, but it, it, you, it's open now. And as far as I know, it's uh, it's now a permanent uh, exhibit in Balboa Park in San Diego. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's that's awesome. Well, guys, we're going to take our first commercial break, but don't go anywhere because we have Star Trek news when we get back after this very important message. So run to the bathroom, run to the microwave, get your chicken wings, and run right back and don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Jamie from Check Talking, here to invite you to join us for the best sci-fi theme podcast. Our elite team of Trexperts are here to discuss Star Trek and sci-fi themed content. Call 646 646- 
668-2433, Thursday nights from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Coast Time. We can't wait to hear from you. Live long and prosper. And we're back. And we're going to do Star Trek news. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Incoming transmission. Enter authorization code. Command codes verified. Define parameters of program. Level nine authorization required. Specify parameters. Transfer of data is complete. And welcome to Star Trek News, guys. This is a segment where we try to give you guys some some news that we think might be relevant that's going on in the Star Trek world uh, right now. Uh, we actually have with us a special guest Star Trek news presenter with us tonight, and that's Nate. So we'll let Nate start off our news segment with a story oh, that he has for us. Take it away, Nate. All right, so I got two news uh, today. All right, uh, so the uh, the news that uh, you're referring to is r- related to Star Trek Online. If anybody plays that game, uh, right now there is Q's Winter event going on, and uh, uh, for participating in the 30 days of the event, if you participate at least 20 days of the event, doing uh, various uh, Christmas-related um, uh, categories, like they have snowball fights, they have uh, races, you can go hunt down Krampus. Uh, if you participate at least uh, in one event a day, uh, they have a new Tier 6, which is the highest tier ship uh, in the game. Their new Tier shi- uh, 6 ship is, that you'll get as a reward is the Eisenberg Star Cruiser based off of the USS Nog in uh, uh, last season's, uh, I believe it was shown in last season uh, of uh, Star Trek Discovery. So you just have to play the game or play those events um, once for 20 days of the 30 days and you'll get this free ship. And it looks pretty cool, actually. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, pictures of it from yeah. uh, the series. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to pass that out to our listeners, that if you uh, are like that chip or interested in Star Trek Online at all, now's the time to get involved, and you can get that as a free ship um, just by playing at least 20 days out of the uh, 30 days that the event is going on. It's going on now until I believe January 7th is the final day. And free is always good. We like free. Free is good. Heck yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Thank you very much, Nate. Our, and uh, Charles, what do you have for us? One hour Star Trek Prodigy pilot will air on December 17th. Viacom CBS is taking advantage of the winter hiatus of Star Trek Prodigy and allowing Nickelodeon to show the first two episodes, which aired as one continuous pilot episode titled Lost and Found. On Friday, December 17th at 8 p.m. in the United States, this is for a special showing that popped up on TV industrial sites. sites. Promo has been airing on Nickelodeon for the special showing. Take note, this is just to give a taste of series to people who may not 
ESPN Paramount Plus. The new episodes are still going to be run on Paramount Plus before arriving on Nickelodeon in later 2022. Only Lost and Found is scheduled to be shown on cable. New episodes of Prodigy premiere on Thursdays in Paramount Plus in the U.S. and on CTV Sci-Fi Channel in Canada, where it's available also by streaming on Crave. It is available on Paramount Plus in Latin America, Nordic countries, and Australia. Amazon Prime Video International on Friday. It will debut in 2022 in parts of Europe with the launch of Paramount Plus Sky Partnership. Good news for our international listeners, actually. Yeah. yeah. Our viewers are with that. And it seems like some of those other things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where even people in the U.K. couldn't watch, I think uh, some of that has now been resolved. So it's nice to see this getting rolled out all over the place. Yeah, the more people that can watch Star Trek, the better off everybody is, actually. And uh, our next story goes to Eric, and this is something that we touched on in our episode discussion. Yeah, for sure. Um, Star Trek Discovery Season 4 honors the first Enterprise captain. Captain Jonathan Archer, Scott Bakula, received a perfect tribute in Star Trek Discovery Season 4 premiere. Now led by Captain Michael Burnham, Sonequa Martin-Green, the USS Discovery faced a new threat in the form of a gravimetric anomaly that destroyed the planet Quajan, the homeworld of Cleveland Book Booker, played by David Ajala. Burnham also had her leadership abilities challenged by the new Federation president, Lara Rillick, uh, played by, by uh, Chela Horstel. But it was President Rillick who ushered in a new era of the United Federation of Planets by honoring Star Trek Enterprise's Jonathan Archer. By Star Trek Discovery's 32nd century, Captain Jonathan Archer is recognized as one of history's greatest explorers. A thousand years before Star Trek Discovery Season 3 and 4, Archer was the first man to command the USS Enterprise NX-01 into deep space, as chronicled in the four seasons of Star Trek Enterprise. Archer is even renowned in two different timelines because the alternate Kelvin reality of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies also took place decades after the voyages of the NX-01 Enterprise. Admiral Archer is referenced in Star Trek 2009, and Enterprise is the basis of the villains in Star Trek Beyond. Although Star Trek Enterprise's series finale only hinted at it, Star Trek history records that Jonathan Archer not only helped found the United Federation of Planets, but he served as the first Federation president. In Star Trek Discovery Season 4 premiere, President Rillick surprised all in attendance during the inauguration of the new Starfleet Academy to unveil the Archer space dock. Star Trek Discovery also played Star Trek Enterprise's theme during that reveal. Named for Jonathan Archer, the space dock is a spectacular new facility where the next generation of Starfleet's ships will be built and the current starships will be upgraded with the latest 32nd century technology. The opening of the Archer space dock is part of President Rillick's promise that Starfleet would once again embrace its core mission of scientific exploration. And yes, we absolutely talked about that a couple of weeks ago when they revealed that it was it was a big one. It was a nice little uh, tingly skin moment uh, when they said the Archer space dock. And I just want to appreciate that moment and the homage that they give to him, of course, in the past. In the past, but then also just say that I think I think President Rillick is really, for me, knocking it out of the park. And she was such uh, a, a key part of that scene and bringing all those people together and the unveiling of the space dock. 
was like this real symbolic thing of, okay, look, we're open for business again, right? We're getting the engine started again. Let's get to work. And I really liked that scene quite a bit. And, and um, I, I want to mention something else about tonight's episode, which isn't, which is in reference, direct reference to what we're talking about right now. And that is that I really like how they're trying to get as much enterprise references into Star Trek as possible, which I think is great. And uh, in the episode that was on tonight, we actually get to see a little tiny, tiny enterprise, an X-01 enterprise inside of a snow globe. You got to look real close. Okay, yep. If you pause the screen, okay, and that's only because this is, this is how I am. If you pause the screen, I don't want to tell you too much about the scene, but when you'll see the scene, and if you pause the screen and you look, you'll see that inside the snow globe is actually the NX-01. Because that's when cool. the scene went by and I was watching it, I'm like, what, what ship is that? And if you go back and you pause it, you zoom in on it, you will see that inside that snow globe, is the NX-01, which I thought was an, an, an excellent homage to Enterprise as well. And when you guys see Spoiler the episode, alert. You'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's great what they're doing with, uh, with Enterprise and, and paying it the homage that I think it deserves. So it's pretty cool. So mm-hmm. congratulations to Star Trek Enterprise. And the final story that we have for you guys um, hints at what fans might see in Star Trek The Motion Picture 4K release. After years of hoping, Star Trek fans worldwide finally got their wish. The films featuring the cast of the original series would finally be released in 4K resolution. 4K, for those who are not familiar, is generally the highest resolution available for consumers to watch television or films. Among the upgraded 4K films that will be for sale will be Star Trek, the motion picture, Director's Edition. Before this time, the Director's Edition was available to fans only as a DVD in standard definition or for download in HD on iTunes or other services. Darren Doctorman is one of the production professionals working on this updated version. He was also involved in the 2001 restoration. Doctorman supervised a crew who recreated and completed some of the scenes which were cut in the 1979 movie. One of these instances was the walk to V'ger. Auden said that the team had accessed the equipment that was far more advanced than anything available to the original visual effects teams. But Dotterman was determined that any shots they added would look as if they had been produced by the original team in 1979. While there has been no official update on the release of this new version, Math dictates that the 4K upgrade will be completed by March of 2022. Not too far away, guys. Ben Robinson, a longtime Trek author, who we had on this podcast, by the way, an expert on Starship design and the maestro behind Hero Collectors, Star Trek, the official Starship collections. All of V'ger is in, <laughs> all of V'ger in the movie, said Robinson. But again, when they did the director's edition of the motion picture, they created a CG version that which they could use. I'd be interested to see if they put this shot in, said Robinson. There are still some shots that were meant to be in the motion picture that didn't make it. There was going to be a shot of Vija's silhouette against the moon so you could see the whole 
shape. So I'm curious to see what they're going to do with this, mm-hmm. with the motion picture. And the more I read about it, the more I'm, I'm, I'm getting a distinct feeling that this is going to be more than just the director's cut. It sounds to me like they're going back to some of the original ideas and some of the original um, uh, shots that they just could not do in 1979. And they're trying to recreate them and, and put them back in the movie to make it a more complete film is the feeling that I get. Yeah, I mean, this, so. this one in particular is interesting to me because I, like, in a lot of ways, I want to see what all of V'ger looks like in one shot. But in a lot of ways, that's one of the things I really like about the motion picture is that whole journey through V'ger and all of the different things that they see and all the different environments they go through and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, to kind of have all that summed up in one view takes a little bit of the mystery out of it. But still, I'm going to be getting this thing. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I might have to buy a 4K TV just to watch I it. I know. That's what, that's what I was saying to myself. I don't even think I have a TV I can watch it on yet, but I'm going to buy it. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, and, and also, happy birthday to Star Trek The Motion Picture, by the way. Mm. 42 years ago, December 7th, Star oh, Trek wow, made it to the big screen. So that's pretty Very cool, cool, too. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. And I... You know, I know Star Trek The Motion Picture takes a lot of flack from a lot of people, but, you know, I got to say that the fly around of the Enterprise is just something that you would never, ever see done today. And uh, it's, it's, it's unique and special to Star Trek. It, uh, the Enterprise is as much a part of the movie as the characters. And for the Enterprise to be shown that love in that movie that it got is just uh, is part of what makes that movie so special. Or for well, me, the anyways. Enterprise oh. is a character, Jim, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, in Discovery, uh, you know, it's not the Enterprise, but we are literally getting a a sentient character with the Discovery here as well, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, and, and let's not forget the ultimate reason anybody would want to watch. Star Trek the motion picture in 4K, and that's the Klingon. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, that Klingon scene at the beginning, uh, even today, I, I, is one of the, the best scenes I, that I've seen. Even, I mean, John Dykstra did just a, a phenomenal job on that. And so, um, so did Philo, Philo Bernstein as well, and we're going to have him on the podcast to talk wow. about his work on Star Trek, the motion picture in 1979. And uh, he's going to talk with us about, you know, what he thinks about the new version versus all the work that they did by hand. I got to point that out to you guys. Something that a lot of people forget. Star Trek, the motion picture did not have the advantage of CGI or computers. Every scene that you see of V'ger was hand-drawn and hand-painted by an artist like Philo himself and put together into that movie, which just makes it that much more awesome. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about how he feels about what they did with the CGI versus what they did in the old school day when they made the movie. So you guys want to stay tuned for that. And I will get that posted on our Facebook page as soon as we get that finalized. And this new movie is available for us to watch. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that with Philo again. Because we, we had him on uh, well, a couple months ago, I think it was. Some, somewhere, I think I saw 
a couple of screenshots of the 4K version. And just them passing through the, where they go through, the detail they're showing on there, the cloud formation, just looks incredible. I'm hoping we don't have to have, we have to have 4K to be able to see it. Because, man, if they're going to require 4K to see this thing, we're going to all need need new TVs. 4K Klingons. What more could you ask for? <laughs> you know. Well, I'm hoping that they'll do the that they'll do what they did. You know, you remember back a little t- a little time ago where they brought it back into the theaters. Well, most of the theaters showed that with a digital projector. I don't think anybody was using 35 millimeter. Any, so, how easy would it be? I mean, expensive, I'm sure, but uh, hopefully, some theaters around us will be getting those 4K projectors if they don't already have them. And maybe they'll come back to the theater because, honestly, that's the way I want to see it. I want to see it uh, again <laughs> on a 50-foot yep. screen with amazing sound because that was the way yeah. to see that movie. Because Jerry Goldsmith's soundtrack just knocks that movie right out of the park. Yeah. It, it does. It yeah. really, really does. I, I, was, I actually just watched the motion picture last week, and I'm wondering to myself, let me ask you guys, did, this is a question, which came first, the chicken or the egg type of a question. Did Jerry Goldsmith write the music for the scenes, or did they film the scenes for the music? Well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question, but my guess would be that he wrote it afterward, that the script was written, and that he was, you know, that there were conversations about a mood and that kind of stuff, and he probably wrote, I mean, that's my guess. I haven't, I don't know, have any of you guys read any articles about that kind of stuff specifically or anything? No, that's why I was asking no, what you guys think. Yeah. Oftentimes, whenever you're actually recording the audio, oftentimes they'll actually play the scene on the screen when they're actually recording it. Sure. So he may have had ideas on what to doing it, but that also may mean he may have tweaked some of the music when he got to it to make yeah, it more ominous. The music... Uh, it just goes so perfect with the scenes that where they're presented. It's it's phenomenal how well the music works with the visuals. Uh, it's incredible. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out. <laughs> well, that wraps up our our convention, convention, convention calendar, calendar, calendar. Our Star Trek birthdays uh-huh. and our Star Trek news. And guess what that means, guys. Yeah, time to, time to take a, a deep, deep, deep dive <laughs> into Star Trek Discovery. And there was a lot to go on in that last episode, and we got a lot to discuss. So you go get, go get your chicken wings out of the microwave, run to the bathroom, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back after this very important message from GM Chris. This is Chris from Trek Talking and Beyond, here to invite you to join us for the best science fiction-themed podcast on the Internet. Our elite team of Trexperts are here to discuss Star Trek and other sci-fi related content, and we want to hear from you. Dial 646-668-2433 on Thursday nights from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. on East Coast Time. Hailing frequencies are always open, and we'll get you on the air to share your opinions. We have faith. You will call. And we're back, guys, and it's time to talk about 
Star Trek Discovery, Choose to Live. And uh, in case you haven't seen the episode yet, um, and just to wet your whistle a little bit, here's a little, uh, here's the trailer for the episode. Lieutenant Tilly, Benson Town. I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. <laughs> that's next week's episode. My God, am I getting senile. Where did I put that clip? I know I have it here somewhere. I, I downloaded it myself. That's the wrong one. Where is it? See, when you do when you're live, this is what you get. You get this kind of stuff. Okay, maybe. Is it, okay, is it this one? I know this brings something on your mind. I have been trying to step no, my No, no, I'm sorry. That's the wrong one too. Oh my God, I'm just so senile. All right. Well, it's your first one. day. Yeah, you would think it's my first day at my control panel here. I have like, oh, here it is. Okay, I'm sorry. You know what? I titled it with the name of the episode, Choose to Live. Go figure that one, huh? So anyways, here's the trailer for Choose to Live, the episode that we're about to talk about. Ignore the other two clips I played. Those are next week. This is this week. Choose to Live. The killer is a co-op Nalat nun known as Javini. Those who attack us must see our strengths. Absolutely. You require a different set of tools. Connecting with someone can be a guiding light when things get dark. Come after me, your lives are forfeit. We're totally going to ignore that warning, are we? Mm-hmm. All right. There you have it. Choose to live the episode that we're going to break down, tear apart, and discuss in great depth and detail right now. But first, we always post on our Facebook page because we're all fans. All of us are fans. You guys just as much as us. So we like to include you guys in the show as much as possible. One of the ways that we do that is by having a phone number, 646-668-2433, that you guys, like David, can call and join us on. Another way that we like to include you guys is we like to hear what you think about the episode. So I always post on our Facebook page asking you guys to score each episode on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the best, and what you thought about it. So, Eric, what did our Facebook fans have to say about this episode? Anybody? Hello. I, I just realized oh. I was on mute. That was that was my Hello? fault. Sorry about that, guys. Hello. <laughs> Eric? Hello. Hello. McFly. McFly. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's try that again. I was I got halfway through and I was like, man, my reading's really good, and these guys are super quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's just so, say um, that Matt Johnson said that the story was so so. Uh, too much forced character development. Adir and Gray is the most boring storyline ever in Star Trek. Burnham is finally growing on me. Tilly is acting weird. The effects are first rate. The science is appalling. Saru is back. Yay. Best actor in the series. This episode, I'd give a 6.5. So that's what Matt has to say. Uh, top fan JP Doyle gave it a 9. Definitely the strongest episode of the season so far. John Wirt gave it an 8. I'm intrigued by the giant anomaly. No real guesses as to what it is yet. Discovery was an acquired taste for me, but honestly, how many Star Trek shows start off good from season one? Interesting, John. 
Uh, top fan Keith Swan gave it a 10. Top fan John McCann gave it a 6.5. Sven Soaring said 10. Jeffrey Jenkins said 10. And Karen Savellis said 10. Rick Friesen gave it a 7. And TJ Lacey gave it a 7. They say, you all keep floating in the universe when we get an info on the sphere data. Or did you all just forget it? Dot, dot, dot. And if you average out our fan scores for this week, Jim, uh, they're looking pretty good. We have a fan score of 8.4 this week. So there you go. So that's what we're up against. Uh, So before we dive in, I just wanted to say we got our first view of a brand new starship. We got to see the USS Credence NCC-2804, which was incredibly cool. At first, I thought it was a Nebula class, uh, but it really wasn't. It was it was quite different. And uh, we also get to meet our first future Starfleet officer, uh, and the first officer, Commander Patrick Fickett, uh, the first officer of the USS Credence, and he was a badass mofo. Um, he took on four four Malak Kalat people. Um, before he bit the dust, but he gave it a valiant fight. And I was just, I was impressed. I thought the starship looked good. I thought the, that the little interior shot that we see where they're giving out the, um, the dilithium was cool. And I really liked uh, the commander. I thought that Patrick Fickett was a really uh, intense character and a a good example of what future Starfleet um, officers might be like. So I just, what, what did you guys think about the ship and about that, that whole sequence? Well, how about you, David? What did you think? Did you like it? Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you think? Nice. Um, yeah, I actually liked it. Um, I thought it was, really, um, it was the first thing that we actually got to see uh, something different that you would normally – would she like on discovery or anything. So I liked it. I actually thought that opening scene was pretty cool. Yeah. I thought it was neat too. How about you, Nate? What did you think as, as of the new starship? Actually, it's really the first really good glimpse that we've gotten of a new starship from Star Trek discovery, actually. Yeah. It's all, it's always good to see new starships. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, uh, there are plenty of lovers of what uh, is referred to as uh, starship porn. And, uh, that's the beauty shots of starships flying around and such. We, we talked about the, uh, the beauty shots around the enterprise and motion picture. So yeah, it's always great to see new starships. I'm surprised though, you said the NCC number was only in the 2800s? Uh, yeah, that, that was means, weird. That's really low for even even discounting the, the hundred and some odd years of the burn. Uh, that's still for 950 years in advance. Uh, that's a really low number. I wonder if it's uh, – I'm surprised there's not a letter – after it then if it's a 2800 series uh from a pre, you know the motion picture era or whatnot uh a generational ship from the past yeah maybe I was they started over the with uh, yeah i was thinking maybe the only thing i could think of is maybe this was one of the first ships that rolled off the assembly line after they started uh 
building up their dilithium again and they could produce new starships maybe. I, I don't know. But it, was, it surprised me that the number was so low. I thought it would be like 78, 59 or some big thing like that, but um, it was relatively low. But it was a yeah, cool-looking nice. ship, though. you, you got to admit that. It was pretty cool when it flew by the screen. And I don't think that the the NCC number necessarily – I mean, I know that they keep getting bigger, and obviously Voyager had all the all the five number ones instead of the four number ones. But is it is it really just a sequential thing? Like, was – was the uh, you know was the original Enterprise the the 1,701st ship built for the fleet? It's not like that, right? Well, the Constitution well, uh, was actually, if I'm not mistaken, the USS Constitution is, uh, or is it the Constellation that's like 1017? So yeah, the order doesn't doesn't necessarily matter. Um, I guess when you look at that. Yeah, there could be some holes in there. Like, I wonder if it's by, a by-class thing, and maybe, like you guys were saying, maybe this is an updated... Did they say what class this ship is? I can't remember. It's a Credence class. A Credence class. All right, so that's a new class that we haven't heard of before. It's not like it's an updated Oberth or something. Well, hmm. here's, here's, what I, here's what I can tell you guys. Uh, okay, being old that I am, um, there was an original Star Trek technical manual that came out. And I don't know if it's canon or or what, but this is what what it said. Starship registry numbers, the first two numbers of the registry denoted the class. So Constellation was 17. And then the second two numbers is the ship itself. So Enterprise, is what well, the Constellation was 1700. It was the first one. Enterprise 1701 was the first ship with that number. And then 1702, 3, 4, 5, and it would go all the way up to 99, and then they would come up with a new ship. And that's the way the original tech manual came up with the registry numbers. Now, I don't know if they stuck with that or if they changed that. I, I don't know, but um, okay. that's, that's the way it originally was. Right on. So. Well, this is, I mean, this is definitely a 30, 32nd century looking ship. You know, it's got the, the hollow section of the, of the saucer, uh, like the Discovery has, which is cool. It sort of has a, a truncated saucer in the front with a little flat spot, which actually kind of reminded me a little bit of the NX-01, which was cool. And then it had some very long and thin and very blue, and I believe vertically opposed nacelles, right? Or maybe four nacelles, something like that. I mean, it had it just had a really unique look to it. So I, I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful ship. Yeah, it had it had four. It was kind of like maybe the old constellation ship, like Captain Picard's stargazer type of thing. It was, it was a really except cool they were, ship. Except they were in kind of a cross up and down and left and right and not like the Baran where they were in a box formation at the corners, right? It's, that was the cool thing about it is like take that form the cell thing and then rotate it 45 degrees. I think that's what it was. It looked and really amazing. Did they – I don't remember, but did they disconnect like they do on the Discovery or were they, were they attached? I didn't notice. I really, I literally watched that scene, that little flyby, over and over and over again, and it's just so dark you can't really tell. I think they're attached. I mean, they look like they have nacelle struts that go right to the hull of the ship, so I think they're attached. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a little dark and hard to see details. I'm sure those details will start to come out, or somebody's gonna 
light enhance a uh, <laughs> screenshot or something to make it more visible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, anyways, I just had to, I just wanted to start off the show with that. I thought it was great that we we saw a new starship, and anytime we we do that, we want to talk about it because that's what we do here. We talk about stuff like that. So now that we've talked about the starship, let's dive into the meat and potatoes of this episode. And there's a lot. We have a nice beef stew here brewing in this episode because there's a lot. So the first thing I want to talk about was a, was a scene um, that I just entitled Paths. And I'm going to play it for you guys, and then we're going to talk about it. Janine said she was unsure of her path until she met Paclinen. And then you said that there was another path ahead. The quantum lot are very big on the path thing, right? Paths end and change throughout everyone's life. When we say choose to live, it's an abbreviated form of a longer saying. The path you are on has come to an end. Choose to live. If you find yourself at the wrong end of a Kuwait sword, it's pretty easy to see that particular path is over for you. You either move on to a new path and live, or you stay and die. What if the death is more metaphorical? In everyday life, a path's end can be harder to recognize. You must be willing to look inside yourself with absolute Another thing you're very big on. So that was Michael Burnham's mother talking with Tilly about what path Tilly sees herself on and her um, explanation as to what exactly that means. Because as we know, Elnor says to everybody before he kills them, choose to live. And now we know where that comes from. So Eric, what what do you think this whole path thing is all about in this particular episode. Uh, yeah, the, I really dug this scene quite a bit because I think what we're, what we're getting here, first of all, the scene is great in that we're kind of getting Gabriel imparting some wisdom and it's, it's her wisdom as a person, but it's also um, using the, um, you know, the dogma, I guess, of the Kuat Malat and, and applying that to Tilly's situation. We've seen in all three episodes, Tilly is not right, right? At the beginning of this one, she tries cheese just to try and shake things up. She talks about how Colbert uh, uh, has been talking to her about it. And I love this idea. I love what Gabriel says there where she's, she's like, you have to look inside yourself with absolute candor. And I think that there's a lot of people who kind of go, you know, they go on these journeys throughout life. You may get to a certain point. Sometimes, uh, you know, when you get up into like the age of many of our uh, hosts here, you know, it's midlife crises that happen where like people feel like they have to sort of reevaluate all the things that have been going on because it feels like it's not working for them anymore. And that's where Tilly is. She, she feels like she's growing, but something's not quite right. And the advice that she's getting here is just be truthful to yourself, look inside yourself and do the thing that seems like the right thing to do. And that's a theme that we're seeing, of course, uh, throughout Discovery this entire season. We're going to talk about it in the context of several other scenes later. But that idea that you really have to get peace with yourself and understand what's going on inside before you can really be, 
you know, and I think in Tilly's case, an effective leader towards some of these younger uh, people who are looking up to her now as a mentor. So that's my take on it. Absolutely. And how about you, David? What did you think about that scene? I don't know. I think Tilly might be from the uh, Mirror Universe. <laughs> <laughs> Show well, her Clean your boots <laughs> with your tongues. Right, there may be some shenanigans. I don't know, but yeah, she definitely is. Thumbs up. She's a terror spy. There you go. She doesn't have a goatee, though, so that doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) But your universe women have goatees. Uh, Uhura did not, so uh, no. But Captain Tilly had straight hair. Yeah, that's that's true. That's the goatee. That's the, you know, when the hair is like all funked up from what it usually is, that's when you know you're in the mirror universe. Yeah, you're in trouble then. <laughs> Eric, or Charles, what did, um, what, what did you what did you think about that, that clip, Charles? Did you want to talk well, about that at all? Yes, because Tilly mentions an earlier scene. It's like, she says, I look at these cadets coming out of the new Starfleet. It's like, they all have this belief. They got their ready to follow, their ready to follow direction. And they're ready to go gung ho, and so he's like, I just don't feel that anymore. It's like it feels like it's been so long since I've been out of the academy. I just don't have the gung ho that she's kind of lost her way, and she needs to find a direction. And I think that was kind of the help. It's like, yeah, you can sometimes need to follow a new direction. And there's well, nothing there's wrong with that. There's a real a realism to it. I mean, we've talked about this in previous episodes too, where you know Picard seemed perfect all the time. He seemed like he always knew what was going on, and he just always made the right decisions. And I feel like Discovery thrives in the world of hey, here's a bunch of people on a ship together. They're all really smart. They all do a really good job. They all make mistakes, and this show is exploring all their mistakes. It's ex- it's exploring their idiosyncrasies, you know, their personal lives, like. It's really digging deep. It is. And we have a lot more to dig into. Um, the next, did anyone else want to jump in and say anything about that clip before I move on? Well, it kind of makes you wonder if we kind of think of what we've seen in some of Discovery and also, like we say, Doctor Who, foreshadowing. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So this next clip, um, what, what I really found, uh, to coin the term, fascinating. And uh, I'm, I just entitled this clip, Vulcans Have Emotions. Okay. okay. There we go. May I offer you a warm red spice? Many find it to be soothing when experiencing emotional distress. That obvious. Your grief is to be expected. But your body language also expresses guilt. Illogical is the cause of your loss of the force of nature and, as such, not your fault. I wasn't aware Vulcans were so emotionally attuned. A common misconception. Vulcans experience emotions, some quite strongly. We simply choose to suppress them in favor of a more logical approach. Care to give me a few pointers on that approach? 
The discipline of the Ari Mu requires a lifetime to master. For the uninitiated respite would be fleeting at best. Drowning man only needs one breath. I believe you require a different set of tools than I can offer, Mr. Booker. As a Quajon, emotion is as essential to you as air and blood, rendering the suppression of guilt inadequate. What you require is freedom from guilt. I must have been a sign it was coming. I missed it. If I hadn't, I could have saved my family. So there were two reasons why I picked that particular clip to talk about. First of all, I think that Vulcans got a bad rap on Enterprise because they made the Vulcans out, quite frankly, to be dicks. And they they were without honor. They were spying on the Andorians. They were doing all kinds of, of, of un-Vulcan things. And they just were portrayed in a very different light. And that was the last time we really saw Vulcans. So to see this president, who I really like this character a lot, I think she's she's um, a really good addition to the show. To see her talk about Vulcan having emotions, strong emotions, and sincerely wanting to help Booker with his guilt, I thought was was a great scene and a great way to bring Vulcans back to the forefront. Another reason why I picked it is for Charles. And so, Charles, what did you think about this scene with the Vulcan president and Booker? I think we got an interesting insight on Vulcans because now we admit the fact that Vulcans choose their emotions. But he also, she also admits that for Booker's right, Booker, it would be hard to suppress his emotions because his society thrives on emotion. But it was, that was a very interesting conversation, but I thought that was a very good outlook. Also to see how the Vulcans react. Is they go in and I don't want to say these Vulcans kind of go into a format of a hive mind that they work together to research and investigate and look at Stamets' theory. And I thought it interesting how they sit there and say, no, don't talk. Let us look at the evidence and we'll work on the evidence from there. Yeah, that was a, that was a good scene. Oh, I was very impressed with that scene. It's like, okay, I like what they're doing with the new Vulcan. I like the direction that they're taking with this group. They're technically, uh, technically Romulan Vulcans. They're Navarians, I think, right? They're not actually, yeah, they're not Vulcans. They're not Romulans. They're Navarans. They've taken a lot of the Vulcan philosophies, though, and really are fine-tuning themselves. Right. And really, I think they're going to be maybe a little more superior to the way the Vulcans used to be. 
Absolutely. I would love to get some time to spend learning more about their, these Vulcans that they're now having. Yeah. What did you think? What were you going to say, Eric? Oh, just that, uh, how much I love Trina. And I actually think that it's interesting that she is actually playing – I mean, she's a Vulcan, but she's not playing it straight-up Vulcan. And I think that that is kind of taking into consideration that – Romulan culture has obviously influenced Vulcan people, and Vulcan people has obviously influenced Romulan culture as they've made this combined planet. And And you'll notice that that's also a theme that goes throughout the whole show. It's this idea of, like, bringing together dissimilar groups and throwing them together and, you know, having them work it out. Uh, and there's no stronger example of that, I think, than the Vulcans and the Romulans having being forced after the destruction of Romulus uh, into working together. And I love the way she is playing that part, bringing the Vulcan stuff to the table. But um, she has facial expressions. You know, she uses words like I hope, um, that kind of stuff. I think that writing is intentional. I don't think those are oversights. I think it's to convey that things have changed a little bit over time. Well, we know we know that Romulans are very emotional, and Vulcans choose not to be. So then now they're they're together, so they are going to influence each other and and come up with a new um, version of Navarian or or, or 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 Vulcan or I don't know yeah, Navarian. I guess is what Navarin. And and we're and remember we were dropped into this, and this has already happened. So they've already been living like this for a while. So this has been developed. This is the new norm in the 32nd century. So whatever you thought you knew about Vulcans before, it has modified over the last 930 years. Exactly. And uh, David or Nate, you guys want to add anything about this clip before I move on? Well, I'll just add real quickly. I believe Spock uh, said something similar uh, in an episode or two, whether it was TOS or the movies, uh, about uh, the suppression of um, the their emotions. So I, if I remember, I don't, again, I don't remember where, but yeah. – uh, but I believe he did say that. So it's nothing all – it's not really new information. It is new to Booker, obviously, but uh, not not to the viewing audience of old-time viewing audience. And I think that's the point, Nate, is, is I, I like the fact that they actually brought it up again because I think that maybe some people are watching this show that have never, ever, ever seen TOS, right? You, you and I have seen them, seen them all right. multiple times. And so I like that they kind of brought that up just as a like, oh, by the way, um, we actually do have super strong emotions. So, yeah, it, but they did it yeah, in the guy's I, book, didn't I, know. I would like to add, too, that in, didn't in Enterprise, the Vulcans had also told them, uh, the Enterprise crew, that in the past, the Vulcans used to be like some sort of warrior race or something like that. And their emotions got the better of them until the uh, time of Shurak apparently suppressed all that. And I think... If I remember correctly, I think that's when the time the Romulans ended up leaving to go find their own civilization, and that's why their cousins and hundreds of years later, you know, all that stuff happened. So I think it's been known even since Enterprise that the Vulcan definitely had some sort of emotions that they had that was just bottled up, I guess. <laughs> well, wasn't that the stalagmites that left? No, stop it. Stop it. No. Fear Knights. 
It was Sarah and well, I. so that so that yeah. <laughs> I can never tell if you're actually asking a question or if you're just jabbing me. <laughs> well, the Sirenites, I mean, so the Sirenites were the ones who actually were, were yeah, leading into that. But remember, in the Enterprise, they go back in time, or Jonathan Archer, you know, figuratively goes back in time through his um, mind meld with Sarek, and he actually learns about the time of Sirach and actually, you know, sees what it was like on Vulcan post essentially nuclear holocaust um, on on the planet and then how that would then grow into the thing. And then, you know, I, which show is, is it that same show that explores that Serac was not really, you know, necessarily a nice guy? <laughs> I mean, I don't yeah. want to go down too far down that rabbit hole, but, but yeah, there was a lot of Vulcan information given in Enterprise. Yeah, here's a Romulan spy. Yeah, he was a Romulan spy. <laughs> you can't trust those stalactites, you know? They're not to be trusted. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, our well, show notes right at the top, Jim. Right at the top. Yep. Right at the top. <laughs> so uh, we're going to take another quick commercial break. So run to the bathroom real quick. Don't touch that dial. And since we're talking so much here about uh, Star Trek and Vulcans and whatnot, you know what? I've got here for you guys. The original clip from uh, Star Trek in 1966. This was the promo that played on TV when Star Trek was new. A lonely ship streaks along an endless path. It's the mammoth starship Enterprise. Follow her trackless journey each week on Star Trek. William Shatner stars as Captain James Kirk, starship commander. And Leonard Nimoy stars as science officer Spock, half Earthling, half Vulcanian. There are hazards that beset the Enterprise and its crew on board ship and on alien planets. Don't miss Star Trek in color. They got rid of that cheesy music and went with the Star Trek music that we're so used Those to. Those horns were all over the place. The, yeah. The or whatever just, they were using, they were all over the place. Yeah, they were nuts. So anyways, we're back, guys, and we do have a caller on the line, and uh, let's see who we have here. Hey, good evening. Thank you for calling Trek Talk, and what's your name and where are you calling us from tonight? Yeah, my name is Joe. Um, Hi, Joe. From Star Trek Nine. How you guys doing? I'm calling from Montana. I Excellent. Just, Wait, I Joe just, from Montana. Yeah. Haven't we talked to you before? I think maybe about ten years ago. Yeah, it was a while yeah, back. I, yeah, I think I, I think you did call a while ago. Thanks for calling back. How you doing? <laughs> Not bad. How about you guys? Oh, we're doing pretty oh. good. We're talking about Star Trek Discovery tonight, actually. Well, you know what I wanted to say? Like I said, I was just driving by. I saw the show, so I tuned in for a few seconds. And when I was listening to you guys, um, the other caller or the co-host was talking about, he said he guessed that the Vulcans had feelings of some kind. And I'm thinking right away of Spock. 
So I wanted to call in, as I'm doing now, and I wanted to say, did you guys ever see the episode, <laughs> the episode where uh, the, Star, the original Star Trek, where Shatner says to Spock, uh, Spock, every day you seem to be getting a little bit more human. And then Spock, in a very, very dry manner, says, Captain, I see no reason for you to insult me. <laughs> so he had to have feelings. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a good one, Joe. <laughs> you know? Uh, so he had to have feelings in order to feel that, you know? But then, as I was listening to what you call the cheesy promo, and I think you're right, I didn't like the promo, um, they mentioned that he was, that Spock was half human and half Vulcan. I, either I forgot it or I didn't know it. So that might be, a, that might account for his particular feelings. But I would also have to guess Vulcans had to have some sort of feelings in order for them to use their intelligence to get where they wanted to go. So they had, they didn't have the same kind of feelings we had, maybe not to the same degree. Maybe they never felt real passion. But they use their logic in order to obtain results to conform to what they wanted is what I presume they probably did as, you know, sentient beings. Right. Yeah, and, and Spock being half human was um, uh, a detriment, well, not to us <laughs> as fans, but to other Vulcans was a detriment to his advancement <laughs> because he was, he was not a full Vulcan. And that they look, they right. looked down on him for that reason. Well, well I never saw that in the. Um, oh, is that why? Because I never saw that during the series. I I would have thought that if you were half and half, <laughs> you know, a half breed intergalactically is still a half breed. <laughs> and right. Well, they probably <laughs> did look, you know. <laughs> the, the, the Vulcan, the Vulcan children uh, would pick on him in the in the TAS episode yesteryear. They bullied him. Oh yeah, and we 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 see him getting bullied in uh, Star Trek 2009. When, well, of course, that's the Kelvin universe, but the uh, we see him being bullied, and we see we see his father Sarek tell him in that movie that you know he has to pick a path, and what what path does he want to go on? Which fits in perfectly with what uh-huh. we're talking about here tonight with paths. Uh-huh. And is he going to follow the Vulcan path, or or is he going to follow the human path with it like his mother? And we all know what path he right. chooses. He chooses to be a Vulcan. So, we, you know, we all have choices to make, and, and Spock made his. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and Paul, I don't know, uh, I don't know if Leonard Nimoy enjoyed being typecast as Spock. Uh, that's the role that you know, he's always going to be named for. I saw him in Mission Impossible a couple of times, but um, I don't think anybody can ever get Spock out of their minds. Plus, he's the best Vulcan um, in that particular role that I've ever seen. Well, you think, know, the other ones that have come after. Oh, yeah, I think that Leonard uh, Nimoy had a problem with being Spock in the in the early seventies, and he wrote a book, "I Am Not Spock." Where I, am, he, I was about you know, to say, just, yeah, yeah, he <laughs> well, he explained to fans, a, but yeah, go ahead, Charles. There's a sequel to that book. There's a sequel to "I Am Not Spock." Later on, he actually did write the, write the book, I Am, and you get a lot of insight on Nimoy and his fear of being typecast and realizing that he was Spock. 
that he couldn't walk away from the Spock character. I've read, I've done the book in audio, and he's actually read the book, and it is fabulous and well worth the listen. Yeah, I think I think Nimoy came oh. to grips with with the character, yeah. and you know later well, on, but in he, the early in the seventies, not was, so much. And I think at Jim, as time went by, I, I think that, and what he talks about this in I Am Spock, he as time went by, he recognized how important it was to like the whole franchise, right? Like, I think at some point, when these actors at the very beginning started the show, they're like, oh, we're on this science fiction show. This might be a job for two or three years. None of them expected that it would take up 50 years of their life. And he finally no. came to terms with that, you know? Absolutely. Well, he should have come to terms with that. Yeah, because, I mean, he, he after that particular show was shot on the stardom, um, I think maybe a few episodes on Mission Impossible, he never really got back to being on the A-list in TV. So to have Comic-Con or to have revivals of Star Trek, that's good for him. And he should not, he should not repel that particular image. There's somebody else from another series who got, who got typecast, but he, he or she, I forget who now, says they, they loved being that character and they loved the fame came as a result of that character. Now, I don't know if they're telling the truth because I don't think – Hardly anybody likes to be typecast in Hollywood, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. Well, he did. He did do. Um, he did do In Search of, which I used to watch religiously, as well. <laughs> and uh, he was an Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as well, which is another movie that I enjoyed. Uh, but I, I think you're right, though, Joe. I think that Leonard Nimoy will forever be tied to Mr. Spock, and that's just the way it is. <laughs> How was he, and how was the, the movie, The Invasion of the Body Statues? I remember watching the original one with Kevin McCarthy, and I liked that one. And usually remakes aren't quite as good. Well, um, give, give it a watch. Leonard Nimoy, uh, he doesn't star in it, but he has a, a, a pretty beefy, important role in the movie. And uh, no uh, emotions, obviously, because the aliens don't have emotions. But, um yeah. The ending, I, I really like the ending. It, it's it's a good ending. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I think you should check it out if you want to see Leonard Nimoy um, doing other than Spock. It's a pretty good movie. Mm. Well, he, I, like I said, when I seen him in, I think, Mission Impossible, he didn't act like this very straight-laced robotic character. Um, I mean, he acted, and he was, you know, he, he wasn't exactly what you would call a great character actor or a leading man, but he held his own and he did it without having to portray Spock. Um, yeah, but I mean, how, but overall the movie, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the, did you like it? I mean, for, oh yeah, I, I, Spock. Yeah. I, it, it has an all-star cast actually, um, in the movie. And, uh, Leonard Nimoy is just one of this ensemble cast. And, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It's it's kind of a mystery trying to figure out what's going on and who's a pod person and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was really I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite movies, actually. Was there an episode movie. in there where I uh, see in the in the fifty sixth edition there was a, a professor and who was in love. I I don't know if I don't remember if it was his wife or his girlfriend. 
And what had happened was, as, uh, as probably what happened in this particular revision, if you fall asleep, your body and mind gets inhabited by the aliens. So there was a, uh, a part of scene in that original movie. I think it was played by Dana Winter or Winter, maybe not Dana Winter, but Kevin McCarthy and the woman where she and he are in, deeply in love and they're running away from the aliens and they, have, they know they can't go to sleep. If they go to sleep, they're going to wake up being inhabited. She goes to sleep when he has to leave her to go outside the cave. And that particular scene where he comes back in and now she's looking at him like she doesn't know him. She doesn't love him anymore. And she starts shouting out, he's here. He's here. Now she's betraying him. Was that kind of scene in the, in the movie that you saw? Well, uh, it's a little bit different because they have these little pods these little plants, these uh-huh. little red plants. And they, they put them next to your bed. And when you fall asleep, the vines come out, and they crawl up your nose and in your ears and take you over that way. Uh, so they, they take right. all these pods, and they bring these pods around. And when people sleep, the pods hatch and take you over. Um, so it's a very mm-hmm. similar uh, to the original. Yeah. Not exactly. But, but was that not the path they chose? Yep. There, but, yeah, there yeah, was but, I mean, was that scene in there where where the where uh, the the protagonist felt betrayed by his by his woman? Yeah, kind of. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that to me was the memorable memorable part of the original movie. Outside of the very end, where Kevin McCarthy is yelling in the middle of the street, they're here. Be on the lookout. They're here. And he's watching trucks roll by with the pods. And, they, and, he, and he knows that the pods are being transported to where they're going to start invading the earth. Mm. Yeah, it's very similar. I, I, check it out. I think you'll like it, Joe. Okay. It's got a modern yeah. twist on it. It's, it's so what about cool. this Discover of 2009 that you were talking about before I came in? Uh, what, Star Trek 2009? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we were just we were just talking a little bit about the movie in 2009 uh, with Mr. Spock, and when he when uh, he has to decide whether he wants to be human or Vulcan. Uh huh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, going back to um, Coral, Mr. Spock. Uh, I think a really good scene was when he sacrificed his life for the for the good of all. Sacrifice one for the good of all. Yeah, that was a, that was in uh, that the was, Wrath of Khan. Mm, I like yeah, I like the Ricardo Montalban um, in the Star Trek series and in the movies. Yeah, but I like that particular yeah. scene. All of a sudden, yeah, I thought it was good acting for a person who was lifeless. Uh, Trying, you know, that was his character. But he sacrificed himself for the, uh, you know, for the good of the, the good of humanity. Pretty nice. Yep. The good of the good of the many outweighs the good, the good, the needs of the one or the few. Absolutely. Yeah. Good scene. I was Great just hoping it did. Good scene. Yeah. Great movie. I was hoping it didn't have a communist collective message. I'm hoping that that's not what it was trying to portray. But um, no, self-sacrifice. I, it's just, I'm hoping. Yeah. I think it's just one of the philosophies 
of the Vulcan, basically. The right. Itic, infinite oh, diversity okay. and infinite combinations. So listen, Joe, you're you know, I'm I'm glad that you called back. I, I know that I've talked to you in the past. Mm-hmm. I I'm I, I'm well, pretty I called, sure. I think I called yeah, I think I called in once. Um, I believe so. Yeah, um, you, but you, I, you I don't think I called in more than once. Yeah. No, but I remembered but you. I, see, I, I remembered you. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not. I I like Star Trek, but I'm not a I'm not, I'm not a Trekkie, and I haven't watched TV in in, in years. I, I I'm on the internet watching videos, um, and movies which are about a year or two old, but I haven't watched TV. So I don't keep up. Uh, I don't keep abreast of the news, TV, or the latest movie. I know what the latest movies are, but I just don't watch them until they're about a year or two old. Then I see them on um, on YouTube or I see them on um, on a streaming site. Well, definitely check out the uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1980. It, I'm sure you can find it floating around somewhere. A lot of fun. Check it out. I think you'll like it. Let yeah, I can, I can it. Have and, you check it out in a few seconds, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I yeah. think you'll like it. So listen, Joe, thanks a lot All for right. giving us a call, and you're welcome to call us anytime. Sure. We're here every Thursday. All right. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks Peace a lot out. for calling, Joe. Have a good night. Sure. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, guys. So um, that was Joe from Montana giving us a call, which is pretty cool. Um, so the next clip that um, that I want to play for you guys um, is a, t- a clip that I just entitled the president. Captain, if we may speak frankly, of course, this joint mission is a political necessity. Navarre and the Coapalot must feel respected, but make no mistake, you are in charge. I thought we landed on mutual goodwill back there. Goodwill and leadership are two different Anomaly. It is the biggest threat we have faced since the burn. This is our moment to serve and to show why restoring the Federation is so critical. We cannot do that without Navarre. We also can't do it if those who attack us don't see our strength. Javini must be brought in. Absolutely. If you feel your relationship with your mother will make this too difficult. No. No, Javini to the life of the Starfleet officer. I will bring her to justice. I promise you that. Good. Counting on you. So, Eric, what do you think about the new president and the tone that she's setting? I am not in love in terms of like romantically, but I am in love with the way she is managing um, her position right now. I think that she is a politician, <laughs> obviously. Um, she understands political stakes. Um, she understands the kind of influence that she has, the decisions that she makes, and, and what sort of influence those have over the people around her. And in this particular scene, I love that she is checking in with Burnham here. And I think that some people could say, well, um, she doesn't trust Burnham. You know, she she gave her that line, uh, I think it was the last episode or maybe the first one where she said, you know, there's a fine line between a pendulum and a wrecking ball. And she worries that that Burnham is going to go all insubordinate on her and go do something. Well, 
I don't think that's what she's doing here. I don't think she's talking to Burnham because she doesn't trust her. I think what she's doing is she's giving Burnham all the information. And the information has to include what's the priority of this mission. And what I got from that clip is that the priority is 100%. It's like this mission must not fail because not only are these are there all these stakes that are kind of immediate, but there's also stuff going on in the background. We really need Nabar to join the Federation, right? We really need the support of these. We need to show that we can be trusted. In fact, remember that, that you know, how much trouble Burnham and Book had trouble being trusted by people who, <laughs> you know, hadn't heard of the Federation for 100 years. So, so this president just gets all of that, and she's just laying it out, giving Burnham all the information, and Burnham's like, okay, I understand everything you just said, and I'm going to go do this mission because, um, because I understand how important it is. So I love this scene. I love her firm, but... Uh, but gentle hand, I think she's super duper smart. I love how every time somebody argues with her, she's got a reason for what she's doing, and she always backs it up. So one of my favorite characters, love her, loved this scene with Burnham, and I like how their relationship kind of started off a little rocky, but I think it's going to get really tight. I think the two of them are going to become uh, besties as the series goes on. And I think that it's it's really it's really cool to see a a Federation uh, president as a character that we're that we're getting to know because every time we've seen a Federation president up to this point, it's always been like a line or two in a movie here and there, or on an episode with with a, a line here or there, uh, but we've never really gotten into the character and what their job is and what it takes to keep the Federation running. And I think it's great that we get to see that with her. And Jim, the thing, the thing is, is like, there's so many layers to this because there's all that stuff going on, but then actually go back to her race, right? She's half, well, I think she's supposed to be one third Cardassian, one third Bajoran, one third human. And so, you know, you think about the obviously storied history of DS9 and all of the interactions between the Bajorans and the Cardassians who at some point come together and, you know, this, this, woman is is born of a joined union of all these different races there's this representation going on and they're bringing back all of the the ideas that even the strife from back in that time can be overcome if we're all just open and honest one, with one another and we try and solve these problems together i love that yeah yeah anybody else want to jump in on that theme before we move on i think she actually might be gold rukachi sendant <laughs> well, I mean, she could she could potentially be, but remember, his daughter dies, so there's never a. Um, if that's who you're, if you're talking about Zial, I don't think that she he could. Yeah, it, it, about it wouldn't the be through, president. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, I wasn't sure how serious you were being, but she's probably not a direct. <laughs> well, when you mentioned the whole idea about the Kardashian Bajoran Union, I just like, oh, okay, right. Kakash got to be right. there somewhere. <laughs> but as far, as far as we know, Zial died before she was able to procreate, so it would be from some other relationship. So maybe. Maybe. You never can tell. <laughs> so another clip that I have uh, is, a, is, is I called Absolute Candor. But it can be a little hard to get out of your comfort zone when you can barely get out of the lab, you know? So getting the opportunity to do this, this, this could be really good for me. Um, I'm so sorry. Not that I'm... Um, not that it's good that your sister is getting arrested. Obviously, that's not 
that's not good. That's that's bad. That's not good at all. You worry that I'm dismayed by your enthusiasm. I'm not. Absolute candor. I dig that. So, Charles, what do you think about this interaction between Tilly and one of the sisters of the co-op, Malat, and her absolute candor? I think it's a direction that I like the idea of their absolute candor. I like the idea of the whole truth. And they use that phrase a couple of times in there. And we tend to like, we tend to hide behind the truth. And I think I like how the fact that they're able to sit there and say, well, we're going to just say the truth. We're not going to hide behind it. And it kind of shows, I think, a little direction of Tilly also. It's like, okay, yeah, Tilly's trying to, Tilly's trying to find that direction. We're eventually going to find out Tilly's trying to find that path. And we're just not sure where that path is. But I think this is another tease of the fact that Tilly, Tilly's trying to find a path, and she just needs help finding it. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, David, Nate, any Eric, you guys want to add anything on that clip that you want to say about it? Uh, I'll just say that I thought it was really sweet because um, Tilly's obviously struggling, and she has always been unsure of herself. Um, she talks about her mom and how that influenced her. We read a lot about it in the book. And um, the fact that this person was with one simple word, just like, you, th- you think that I think you're weird. I don't think you're weird. How important is that for somebody who feels internally like they're weird to hear, to just have somebody else acknowledge them and like, no, actually, I totally get what you're saying. I just thought it was very sweet, and it's a very 21st century way of looking at these types of social interactions, I think. I think that in the future, Star Trek Discovery is going to be seen as a show that was ahead of its time. I really do. I, I, yeah, I enjoyed that, that scene, too. Till is one of my favorite characters, and I just like I liked the way they set that whole path thing up and the reaction of the co-op Malat sister to her. I thought was was really was was good. So, all right. So uh, the next clip that I have for you guys is a a, t- a clip that I just entitled "The Gray Body." Guardian Z, welcome. I believe I've prepared everything you need for the incorporation. An atypical arrangement. As befits the Xi'an Tara, unlike any other. Abira Kao, greetings. Thank you so much for doing this. It is my joy to assist. Do we have Ray Tall? Oh, uh, he's here. Greetings. Um, tell him that, um, I'm honored by his presence and I couldn't be more grateful for his help. Really grateful you're here. Guardians are kind of like his heroes. He was on his way to becoming one of you before things went sideways. It is my hope that our work today will allow you to resume your training. However, your unique situation is attended by unpredictable dangers. I 
cannot guarantee that your consciousness can find a new home in a synthetic body without a host's mind to guide you in. You must accept the possibility that you could be lost. Tell him that I'm lost without this. I've been living in an in-between place for too long already. I have to try. He understands the risks. He's good to go. Do we have the consent of Tom? We do. Then let us begin. So this scene, I think, has a lot to do with past. And I think there's a a lot of underlying meaning in this scene. And uh, Eric, why, why don't you start us off with this? What do you think about this? Um, this is uh, a pretty meaningful scene, I think, in this episode. And um, Ian Alexander and Blue Del Barrio talked about it quite a bit on the Ready Room. So if you, uh, if you get a chance to watch that, I definitely recommend checking that out. You can hear uh, a much better version uh, directly from their mouths than the one I'm going to kind of uh, summarize here. But, um, you know, we, we all know that both of these actors in their real lives are uh, transgendered actors. We know that on the show, both of their characters are also transgendered. And we've, um, you know, been learning a lot this season about pronouns and the correct way to refer to someone based on their preference and that sort of stuff. And there's no question, and they talk about this themselves, that the incorporation of gray into the synth body in some respects is allegory for um, what it's like for a transgender person to make the transition um, from the body they were born with to the body that they feel like uh, really suits them. Uh, and I think it's cool that they have not only brought that kind of concept into Star Trek and are exploring it for the first time, like it's, you know, we, we've kind of like touched on it a little bit um, here and there, but not, not in depth and not in a sophisticated way. Um, so I really, I really think that's cool that they're, that they're doing this, but then the fact that they actually used actors who literally go through the same things in their lives to represent these things, um, on the screen, that, that to me just speaks to what Star Trek's trying to accomplish here in terms of representation and stuff. So that being said, I just thought the scene was really cool. It was cool to see uh, the synth body, Gray's new synth body, actually being manufactured right there um, with the programmable matter and stuff on the ship. Um, you know, Gray actually gets the opportunity, I think it was last episode, to make an adjustment. Um, I don't, I've always had this mole in my hand that I hated. Can you get rid of the mole on the synth body? Yeah, we can do that. We can get rid of that and make you feel more like yourself in your new body. Um, so that's cool that they were, they were able to do that. I will say all of that stuff is amazing and meaningful and that kind of stuff. There are some technical parts of this guardian thing and the way that trills work that I think, I'm not sure if they didn't totally research them or if, or if maybe, um, they're trying to expand on it a little bit, but let me explain what I mean. Uh, back in the DS nine days, uh, season three, episode 25, Facets. Great episode. If you haven't seen it, you should go watch it. Uh, in that episode, Jadzia goes through this process that I uh, have written down. Uh, they, he mentions it here. Uh, I can't remember how to pronounce it exactly, but basically it's this idea of 
pulling the consciousnesses of your previous hosts out of your body and putting them into other host bodies temporarily so that you actually get the opportunity to interact with them in physical space. And so in that episode, you know, uh, Quark is inhabited by one of uh, uh, Dax's old uh, female uh, hosts and, you know, a whole bunch of the crew sort of gets involved. The big story is about how Odo gets, um, gets Curzon and then, you know, the two of them kind of don't want to separate uh, and there's some, there's some stuff in there. In that episode, the Guardian, the way the Guardian is able to achieve that is that they actually physically touch the person and then touch Jadzia. And there's sort of this like swishy white light that kind of happens and you see a, it's as if a consciousness is being transferred. Here we've got Guardian Z arriving via hologram and able to perform this ritual um, without any touch over who knows what sort of distance via hologram. I was curious what you guys thought about that because to me, I guess we don't really know in Star Trek and it's a little inconsistent on how far, um, you know, telepathy works, you know, <laughs> like people always say, well, Vulcans have to touch the mind meld. Well, technically Spock didn't have to, he could do it through walls. You know, I mean, uh, do you, did it bother you that Guardian Z arrived by hologram? Like, why wouldn't they just bring him here, right? Just just bust over to Trill for a second and come right back. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say that I think it had something to do with the writers. Um, they just couldn't figure out a way to bring the Trill on board, I guess, or something. I don't know. But it did, as you mentioned it, I actually was thinking, yeah, that doesn't make sense. But, you know, I think it had something to do with the modern writers that we have now and you know it's just they had to implement it somehow otherwise it wouldn't have worked so and they're like okay let's just add this <laughs> well i think well, i think the way yeah. they explained it on the show at least the way i saw it was guardian z says that without without a uh what was his exact words without a host to guide you you might never find the body and i think that gray was floating around in Netherland until Adira came down and sat next to him and held his hand. And then they found their way back. And that's when, that's when Gray wakes up and tells Adira that's how he found his way back. I think that's kind of how they got around that. At least that's yeah, how maybe. I took it. Maybe. I mean, there's one, I'm not going to belabor this too much. There's one other line where they, I think they made a little bit of a mistake and you know, you guys know, I love this show and I don't really criticize idiosyncrasies very much, but um, you know, Adira says something uh, to Z about how gray was on their way to becoming a guardian, right? A guardian is an unjoined trill. Guardians do not have symbiotes inside of them. It's, it's like, that's, it's like, they're like the monk. They're like, <laughs> they don't have, they have like their body. Right. And so, so the fact that they said that gray was training to become a guardian was a little off. Okay. Enough idiosyncrasies. This scene was absolutely beautiful. I really liked it. And I love the idea that a, that this character is able to now be seen physically, come out of Adira's head and be seen in the real world, and then also be seen in the way in which they want to be seen. So, super cool. And, and I think that's the most important thing here is that the more people that feel like they're being seen because they're being represented on Star Trek, I think that's 
that right there is the most important thing of the whole scene. Is how many people are watching this right now and feel like they're lost, feel like they're trapped in between two realities, the reality of what, what the world thinks they are and the reality of how they see themselves. And they feel lost. They, they feel trapped in that. And to see this on Star Trek and to be seen as, um, here's a character that is in the same situation as me, I think is you can't put a price on that. I mean, if that touches one per person, then then it's done its job. And I think that it's going to touch a lot more than one person when to see that scene. So I, yeah. I really thought that scene was 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 very well done. The next one I have, I, I entitled it. I just moisturized my hands. <laughs> leave your pages on board. They are not the Kowalwala. We are not Kowat Milan, and they'll be set to stun. If you go in there with phages, I'll never get through to her. You want to put us in front of a member of your order unarmed? That's not going to happen. Did I say unarmed? We'll be at a huge disadvantage. It was agreed that the ways of the Kowat Milan would be respected. So outside my comfort zone. Heavier than I expected. <laughs> all right, so sorry. I moisturized my hands this morning. Apologies. But don't worry, I'll be good to go. Good, because we're here. Okay, Charles, what'd you think about Tilly moisturizing her hands and dropping the sword? Huh? Well, it's the idea of like, okay. We're going into this the Quat Malat way, and I thought it was interesting how the fact that they're so determined they've got to follow tradition and do it their way. So it was interesting, and then we learned later the fact that Mom, why did Mom want Michael to be there? Because mom was unsure she'd be able to fulfill her requirements. But definitely, okay, I think there's another novel out there that we really could use. I would love another novel on the quat lot. I want their, I want their backstory. Yeah. We really don't have a backstory on them. I really would love to know the story of this group. And this goes this this goes all the way back to prior Picard and possibly further back. We don't know history of this group. And this group they're willing to sit there and find a lost cause and put their life on it. They're willing to dedicate their lives to a cause, a cause that they don't think can come true. You know, you know what I really liked about this particular scene, Charles. The, uh, I thought, first of all, when I look at Discovery, I kind of see Tilly as being us. That's that's the way I look <laughs> at it. Yeah, I think Tilly, yeah. Tilly is the 
I think she represents the fan in all of us. And like, if 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 I was on if I was on Star Trek and they handed me a ballot, I would do the same thing that Tilly did. I'd be like, "Woo!" and I'd go to wave it, and I'd probably drop it. <laughs> I just and I just that yeah. scene just cracked me up because I I I thought, well, you know, that would be me. I'd be like, "Oh, a ballot!" Clunk 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 clunk, and I drop it. <laughs> so well, hopefully um, it wouldn't injure anybody like uh, Mariner. Yeah, hopefully yeah, exactly. no one would get injured. <laughs> but I, I just, I just loved that scene. I loved her reaction, and I loved the way she kind of like, ooh, it's heavier than I thought, and dropped it. And I was well, like, because that's not something well, you would see that, that you see on Star Trek a lot is is somebody making, doing something like that. And it just reminded me that Star Trek is made for fans like us, and. To me, Tilly is the fan in all of us, and I just love that scene. Well, Tilly, Tilly is also using a bit of a Hollywood concept. She's a straight man. She comes out with just the lines, and many of those lines make us laugh. But she doesn't. Yeah. Let, she doesn't let the lines go out. Funny, she says them with a straight face, and we laugh at the reaction. Yeah, that absolutely. is a good <laughs> sign of true comedy. You don't sit there and say the line like you're trying to get a laugh. You say the line straight, and the fans smile and laugh because they enjoy the reaction to what they got from that scene. Yeah, I, it was just—I thought it was a great scene. Um, so I got another clip here. Um, this is the very end of the episode, and um, I just call the scene. This is just a scene that I entitled "The Admiral." You really okay with this? I'd have preferred a different outcome, but it's hard to argue with the president trusting in Navarre as we asked him to trust in us. You like music, Captain? Sure. Think of us as uh, an orchestra. Your first chair of violin with the showy, challenging solos. I'm the drum section, setting the pace, providing backbone. She's the conductor. When she signals us, we play. It's not our job to know if the cellist is drunk or the woodwinds and brass are at war. We each have our part, and we must all trust that she knows the symphony. With a lot of analogy. Well, they pay me by the letter. <laughs> so I lo- I'm really, really digging this Admiral. Um, I'm really liking him yeah. a lot. Um, Eric, what do you think about this scene and about Admiral Vance? Well, you guys know I am a big Vance fan. I've been a Vance fan since the beginning. I love his also strong but caring hand. And, uh, you know, this scene just made me start thinking about Riker and his trombone and, you know, Data and all this music stuff that he tried to do. I I love the visual of uh, the president being the conductor. And you just, that like a person in the orchestra has to trust the conductor because they can't possibly pay attention to all the other instruments at the same time. 
And if you just play the heck out of your instrument and you trust that the conductor knows what's going on, you can make really beautiful music. So it was a great analogy to me. I love that Burnham also <laughs> acknowledged that it was a bit of an extended metaphor <laughs> because it was. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it worked. It worked, so. It totally did. It totally did, right? It put a visual in your head of of how he sees himself in the cog of this new Federation wheel as it's rebuilding itself. And and everybody's kind of learning this for the first time because, you know, he's he's never been in a in a Federation with a functioning president before. He's learning this for the first time. So love it. And I got before we run out of time, I have one more clip I want to play for you guys. And then we got to go around and give our scores. So the last clip that I have is one that Charles touched on earlier and I've I called it Stamets Sharp State. Given the nonlinear behavior and topological structure of the DMA, it appears that any planet within 12 AU of the ergosphere, as Quajon was, will sustain gravitational shearing, resulting in catastrophic instabilities. A primordial wormhole accounts for the shear, but so far... Your theory and its challenges are clear to us. Fantastic. Given time, I would work this out myself, but time is of the essence, so here we are. Um, Could we discuss the schedule for the day? Science first, nap later? I I need all brains on deck here. Our scientists often work in a deep meditative state to sharpen their focus and concentration. Oh, well, I'll... um... Wait over there, then, in my own sharp state. So I, I, I love that, how uh, Stamets is like, can we work first and sleep later? And I'll wait over there in my own sharp state while you guys do your thing. And I, I just thought that was a was a, a funny scene. I, I thought it was kind of cute. So. Well, and, we learn, and we learn how the Vulcans do their research. The new, I shouldn't say the Vulcans. The new group does their research and how they sit there and put their focus on what they need to study. And they don't discuss it. They go into meditation. And that's an interesting way of saying, okay, we're going to meditate and come up with our theories. And only surprise, they they rejected his, but they they didn't admit any theories of their own. No, they didn't. They didn't. So I'm I'm in relief the bulk I'm believing that this group does not know what it is either. Because they're not gonna come up with the solution. So I don't think they know either. It's still a mystery. No, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. So before we run out of time, guys, let's go around the room and give our score. So we'll start off with David. David, what would you give this score this episode? A score one to ten. I think that actually scored pretty well on my chart for this episode. I I like the mystery of the uh, black hole or whatever it might be. Um, I actually like the interaction with a lot of the characters, and I especially like the the whole president and uh, uh, Vance characters that are starting to fold out. So I'm going to give this an uh, episode a 8.8. 8.8. Excellent. How about you, Nate? Well, unlike uh, I noticed you guys, where I'm not a fan of uh, of either of these two 
uh, secret organizations, the Quatmalat or the Zat Vash, both introduced in Picard. Um, so I'm not I'm not a real fan of them. Uh, so I didn't really like uh, the storyline around them. Uh, so I gave it um, an overall six. Uh, six. Uh, All right. Uh, All right. How about you, Charles? Well, one thing we didn't really mention in this episode that I caught on and kind of warned people about it. This is a unique episode for Star Trek. We're used to an A or an AB story. This was an ABC story. Three different stories going on at the same time. And they kept you fixed on it. To me, they kept us intertwined where we were curious. Okay, we're going from this story. What's going to happen? Oh, we get to the new story. Oh, back over to C. Oh, back to A. Over to B. It's like, okay. But they didn't keep us convoluted. It flowed the episode. I'm going to give this one a nine. I think nine? they really coordinated the story well. Excellent. And what about you, Eric? Uh, I'm going to score this one pretty well, too. And even though I had some complaints about the way they they handled the trills, I think that body incorporation scene was just a 10. And I also think the scene where um, Book is able to relive the one memory that pulls him out of his guilty funk, uh, that scene was a 10 as well. I think I literally shed a tear when he did. It was amazing. Um, so I, But I don't know if it was my favorite, favorite episode. So I'm going to give it a solid 8.4. Eight points. So you're you're exactly with the fans. I, think the I fans guess I am. I had it written down, and I just realized it's the same number. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I, I'm right around. You know, I'm right up there with you guys. I think I'm. I think I'm going to go with David. I think I'm going to go with like an eight point eight. I think a little bit above the fans. I think, and uh, that wraps up our show, guys. No, I, I want to say thank you. Go ahead, Nate. No, that wasn't me. Oh, that wasn't you. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to Joe uh, from Montana for giving us a call. Thanks for calling, Joe. I want to say thank you so much to David for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Thanks, David. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. And I definitely want to say thank you to Nate for keeping us up to date on the Star Trek Online and giving us a new story for tonight. Thank you very much, Nate. You're welcome. And definitely thank you so much to Eric for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Thanks a lot, Eric. Always a good time. Thanks, guys. And last but definitely not least, thank you so much to Charles for hanging out and Trek talking with us. Charles, thank you so much. Oh, always a blast. And I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim, letting you guys know that next week we're going to talk about All is Possible. And now I'm going to play the clip for you guys that I accidentally played at the beginning. This is the episode we're going to talk about next week. I know there's been something on your mind. I've been trying to step outside my comfort zone, like little baby steps. Challenge myself. Go. Get inspired. Okay. (laughs) So fun. Today is about the very future of Starfleet. The anomaly has ignited old and new fears alike. Typical day. All right, guys, that's next week's show. We'll be back same bat time, same bat channel next Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Put us on speed dial. Mark your calendar. It's going to be a great show. 
As I said, I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim. Hailing frequencies are closed. Please stay safe and be good to each other. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good and prosper. Night. Auto. All right, then. Everybody ready? Yes, sir. Let's fly.